So, just uh, acknowledge everyone. Some familiar faces and some uh, new people. And, uh, so I'll uh, offer some reflections, some thoughts, uh, just what <coughs> seems straight from the heart. I began, when I began practice, I began uh, practice in a very um, st- highly structured way. Um, it was using the Burmese Satipatthana system, which is a quite a uh, carefully tooled, structured system. I hadn't done any meditation at all, so I went from nothing to that. And because I re- felt I needed a structure in my life, uh, like after the class was over, I said to the, it was in Thailand, I said to the monk who was teaching, can I go to the monastery? Because I felt the structure there would keep me focused. Otherwise I was just going to dissipate. And he said, yeah, you, yeah, you can go. It's free. You can go. Okay. Just show up. So, <laughs> so I, I kind of went, packed my stuff, sorted things out and went down the road to the town where the monastery was and they said, okay, you be here, here's a place, a little hut you can live in you've got to keep these precepts, these eight precepts I said, okay, which includes, you know, so it was very, it was a solitude and nothing, no eating in the afternoon, obviously no entertainments, celibacy, you know, the thing so that that was um, day two of my meditation career. <laughs> it was like deep end approach. <laughs> and I thought, well, I'll, yeah, maybe a week of this will sort things out, and then I'll get back on the road. And after a week or so, I, thought, well, yeah, I can sit still for five minutes. Yeah, I'm nearly there. Because <laughs> I hadn't sat still for five minutes before in my life at all. <laughs> And so then I, after a while, I thought, yeah, this might take a little longer, maybe three months, and then, and then, well, it doesn't seem to be quite settled yet, but probably a little longer should do it. So that was three years I was in this hut in solitude. Very, so it was both structured in terms of the meditation system, structured situation, you know, very structured. You know, the simple, you are within this box, uh, that's it, and this is there's a and it's very highly bounded. You know, you don't go out, you don't do things, you don't talk to people. Uh, not that I could speak the language anyway, but so no socialising, and so it's very highly structured. <coughs> and then, uh, so I practiced that with with full intention and full determination. And after three years of that, my father died in England. So I thought I'd better go back to England and sort things out. So then I, I didn't know quite how to do it, but I sort of scrambled, got some stuff together. Somehow got on a plane. Uh, ended up in Warsaw or somewhere like that, and then got a transit to London. <laughs> it was a crazy trip. <laughs> and then uh, got back to where my mother was living and just watched my practice completely fall apart. <laughs> Yeah. 
and uh, just trying to find some ground when there was no structure. Uh, you know, trying to find some steadiness when there's no structure. And I remember just some just going outside and standing, standing in the rain in order to try and feel my body <laughs> to get some sense of earth <laughs> beneath my feet. It was that because what the the structure had done in its own way, and I certainly benefited from it. It taken all my skin off, yeah, <laughs> all my hard skin had come off, you could say, you know, and all my distractions, you could say my clothes were off, my hard skin was off, but then you come out and you're just like jelly, at least I was anyway, you know. So fortunately I had the good fortune to then, um, had enough savvy, thinking I've got to get some help here, and so, because I was a monk, you know, and a so that's that's an extremely structured thing. So get me to a monastery. So I went fortunately <laughs> pr- pronto. <laughs> Things are just going complete. I feel like a scrambled egg. So I, fortunately I went down to London. There was a little vihara, and I had briefly met Ajahn Sumedho before. And I went down there, and he said, "Oh, come in, welcome in." Yeah. So he c- took me in, and uh, then we we lived together for a while and I thought, oh this is this is different, this is better. Well this is this is helpful. It was like it was a nest, it was a warm place. People were people and uh it was warm. Uh and then his teaching very little structure at all. Sit there, everything arises, passes away. Be with that. And I thought, what is what but how do you meditate? How do you? He said, the thought, what the thought, how do you meditate? Notice that arises, be with that, that pass, you know. But, but, <laughs> but what was provided was a structure, a community structure. You lived together, you operated together, you had certain loyalties, affiliations to the teacher, to the other people in it. It was only a small group, and that, and you, so you were held within that, and you were held within a larger structure, which is all the, the, lay people who'd come round and help to hold the thing together. Yeah. So there was a communal structure, you could say, a living structure. And gradually over time, that sort of began to replace my, my early structure. Yeah. Mm. And so then, I was trying to realize, well, then as, as I shifted my mode of practice, or my mode of practice began to shift of its own accord. I thought, well, how do, what do I, how would I try to sum up how to meditate? I remember I was taking a shower one day, and I had to go and teach a retreat. And I was in this shower, and I thought, how do I meditate? Well, showers are great because people leave you alone, and you do <laughs> <laughs> nice soothing water running down. And I thought, well, you pay attention. Yeah, you definitely pay attention. Yeah. And as you pay attention, then, yeah, that, that creates a form. And then you begin to widen and soften. Yeah, so, and then you meet what arises, meet what arises in your mind, meet what arises. Just meet it. Uh, and then as you get that underway, as you're able to meet stuff rather than react to it, shut it down, run away, proliferate on it, complain about it, identify with it, <laughs> Blame it on somebody else, blame it on yourself, try and sort it out in your head, just meet it. Yeah. 
then as that becomes more available, include it all. Include, include so you keep widening to include it all. Yeah. Which means it comes into the day as a, as a model of how, of how I practice, which I thought, yeah, that's about it. And just for years, sensing that and practicing with that, and then the words meet what arises, include it all, all, began to take on a larger significance. <laughs> yeah. That is one still operating very much with the, within the boundaries of what I call my mind. Yeah. My, my thoughts, so include all that. My reactions, my emotions, include all that. But as I began to include all that, then I recognized there's something else you're leaving out, which is a, you know, include other people, how they are, what's happening for them. Get interested in that. Learn to mo- be still with them, to pay attention to them, meet what arises in that, soften, widen, open your heart, meet what arises, whatever they're experiencing, meet that, include that rather than tell them they should be different, give them a pill, tell them to go away, uh, you know, strategies. Uh, <clears throat> fix them, change them, even understand them, don't bother. Just meet what arises, wide and soft and include it all. And trust, what, uh, see what happens with that. Uh, and through that, I began to recognize just how many boundaries there are to cross. How many places are boundaries marked by fear, marked by people's nervousness, marked by uh, people's criticisms of themselves and others, marked by people's traumas where they feel they can't go, they're not allowed, they're not, they're not okay, there's something wrong with them. These familiar <coughs> boundaries that arise for people, yeah. not being included. And I, as listening, as I began to teach more, listening to people more and more, realizing, wow, everybody's feeling there's something wrong with them, and they're, not, they're the odd one out or they're not included, they've been excluded by the society, their parents, their partners, their health, their race, their gender, something is something there is not, they've been shut out and they're hurting because of that. Hmm? <coughs> and so just, rea- where does, you know, sensing some of that and oh, not even fixing it or changing it or giving people anesthetics or sedatives, don't worry about it, you know, but just meeting the the pain of people's hearts at this place of exclusion. Mm. And including that and witnessing that, where does all this happen? When one realizes it's so beautiful, it's so beautiful, it's so transformative, when, there, when, we, when we can, either within ourselves or with others, just be at the place of meeting 
and widening and including and not naming, changing, fixing, analyzing uh, and including what happens with that so I spent about 12 years uh, doing some of this um, this approach quite consciously with other people just to focus on that notice what happens when we just sit together in presence and what arises and the agitations, the fears, the sense of what we think about each other the feelings of I'm not good enough for you or you think you're not good enough for me or we better keep talking making something happen because we feel nervous or you know and just meeting that and letting it arise and pass where does all this come from? How come we're all like this? <laughs> You're trying to find somebody who wasn't like this. <laughs> and then, including all, begin to witness, well, look at the society we're in. It's built on exclusion. It's built on building in boundaries and walls, stratification in terms of money, uh, Racial race, racism is a big thing. You know, money, big thing. People broken up into into isolated entities, and uh, huge amounts of exclusion, not being allowed. What it feels like, not allowed, not good enough. Uh, Should try harder. If I tried harder, worked harder, I could be if I worked at it, so I have to run harder, faster, be something that I'm not in order that I can be accepted. Yeah. And actually structured in to the, the, the society, the way the society works. And because of that, people just at odds with each other, nervous, frightened, resentful, jealous, uh, divided. And because of that, we lose our strength and we become um, enslaved because mm. we lose our we lose our strength we become habituated to this process that 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 limits us and causes us harm divides us from each other mm. and nobody's happy with it so you know, it's a reform. You know, it's a returning again to that first noble truth. How do we include suffering rather than blame it on someone? Which, yes, we could do that, and it, you could find very good reasons and statistics to blame it on the person who beat you, lied to you, cheated on you. Yeah, you could do that. That would, but where does that go? Um, we could blame ourselves, inadequate, not good enough, should have been something other, should have you know, been wiser, brighter, something or the other. You know, we could do that. Where does that go? Shuts, always shuts down into you know, myself and others, me and what I should be. And my, right now and the future, you know, another division. If I've tried harder, worked harder, you know, then I would be something better in the future. So we get driven on that. So this excluded from fulfillment in the present, 
which is the point of the Dhamma, is fulfillment in the present through coming through, through recognizing what excludes us, what shuts us down, and practicing through that, working with that. So this theme has been something I've been uh, reflecting on a lot. In the first noble truth, you you're probably aware the the, um, the Buddha says, "Well, you know, birth is dukkha, <coughs> separation from the light is dukkha." Separation is dukkha. Birth is coming into a separative form. In being born, one becomes separated from, we become localized. And he said, just this alone is already the condition for dukkha, for suffering. And most of us were encouraged not to release that, but to magnify it to become a very strong self, an independent self, to fill it up with various goodies, you know, education, knowledge, wealth, status, adoration, just get that package bigger, yeah, uh, and go that way. And the frustration of realizing even as one does that, because that's the main message, it's not working. So, well, have another one have a bit more, you didn't do it enough. It's not working, so a bit more. And that direction, you can see, is very much the social myth, isn't it? Called progress. (laughs) But when you do that, as we probably do to a certain extent, realize there's only ever, with that trajectory, there's only ever one winner and everybody else has to be eventually seconded (laughs) for me. And over time you realize, I'm not even the winner yet. (laughs) If I had a bit more, I would be. (laughs) So more, more. And and you see people who who manage to follow that trajectory, and you witness from the outside, you think, my goodness, this person's a monster. Selfish, egomaniac, narcissistic, arrogant, you know. And that's not the way, is it? And what's the other way? If it's not about getting more in this, filling this up with knowledge, with wisdom, even with meditation, you know, to get more of that. If that whole attitude is already going that direction, is there another way? And the other way, of course, is to sacrifice, uh, be with the unpleasant, meet the uncomfortable, uh, open to that. When she begin to open to how it is in yourself, in your body, in the world around you, you will feel uncomfortable. 
as far as I could see. <laughs> I don't think this is, I don't think Dhamma practice is comfortable. It's not a tranquilizer. It's not a sedative. It's not an escape. It's meeting this discomfort of the noble truth, of the first truth. So, in order that we can find or realize or deepen into a quality that does pass through the boundaries, we begin to understand actually, pragmatically, perhaps without even being able to, to find words for it, really what the true nature and the potential of chitta is. Now, chitta is, I'm using the word first because this normally would be translated as mind. And uh, that's a reasonable enough English word, but it tends to localize it very much. Mind is probably a set of mental states that occur for me. That's why I call my mind. A set of mental states that occur for me, a psychologies. I might expand it to include emotions, a bit of heart as well. It's all my mind. And of course, the the fundamental thing that meant that my initial meditation class of 15 minutes turned into 43 years of practice was the initial meditation class made me recognize I am watching my mind. My mind is, of course, totally crazy, but I'm aware of it. And then the thought came to me, well, if I'm aware of my mind, which one is me? (laughs) The mind or the awareness or both or neither? What's that? How is it that I can be aware of my mind. So just the beginning of an inkling of maybe my mind isn't me or my mind. It's just this. <laughs> yeah. So what is it? What do we cultivate? What do we touch into that can handle this mind thing in that sense? That we were called chitta, the awareness of mind, and uh, that we would call chitta, sometimes awareness. And most of the practice being how does awareness meet these mental states without reacting, without should be another way, without uh, blaming it, without indulging in it without getting fascinated with it. So, basic practice, isn't it? Mindfulness of chitta. Mindfulness of this zone, this area through which things, this affective mental states run and race and move. Is that, what is this awareness? And how can I also be, how can this awareness also be aware of bodily experiences? Not just sensations, but also energies, 
bodily states? Is it, where is it then? Is it in my head? How come I can feel the sensations, the energies in my feet if my mind is in my head? How come I can be aware of feeling hungry at the same time as watching the landscape go by if I'm in a car? How come I can be aware of both of those things at the same time? You know, if we couldn't, we wouldn't be able to function, would we? So clearly, this awareness is not doesn't have a particular location. It encompasses all locations. Uh, and dwelling in that, I recognize the locations begin to, to multiply. I can be aware of phys- sensations, tactile sensations, um, coarse mental states, subtle mental states, silences, subtle energies, grosser energies. It's both aware of all those and yet none of all those. This is its potential. It's got actually has no boundary at all. If you just consider this, you, as you meditate, you can recognize you have a function called attention, which is the thing we begin with because we start somewhere, pay attention. It means you definitely place a boundary on what you're focusing on. You know, and that that's yeah, it gives you a sense of steadiness. But you do realise you place a deliberate boundary that excludes discursive thought, you know, um excludes um unskillful tendencies and so forth. It's an exclusive boundary and it's chosen. It's directed and it's chosen and it's exclusive. Yeah. It excludes things. That's its nature. It's called attention. Now, if you're aware of attention, aware of the boundary of attention, say even with, even visually, let alone mentally, you can recognise that's as far as I can see, and then beyond that, I'm aware of something wider than that. Yeah. My awareness itself is aware of a boundary but is not within the boundary. If you're aware of your body, you can be aware of the the sensations, the physical qualities, the heat, the warmth, and you can also expand that, that can expand to overall the entire sense of having a body can be held as one thing. As it says in the Satipatthana, one is simply aware there is body. So not just this sensation, but the whole thing. So the awareness seems expands from a can be a very narrow location to something wider and wider. And you can be aware of the boundaries of your body, and more powerfully, more usefully, if one cultivates and uses practice, you can be aware of the boundaries of your uh, mindsets, your attitudes, your comfort boundaries we could say the boundaries you've chosen that so often in meditation retreats the boundaries that you've chosen to attend to are constantly being interfered with by the lawnmower (laughs) by the snuffling yogi by the pain in my foot if only that wasn't there then 
you know, or the irritating thought, if that wasn't there. The boundaries of one's attention are always challenged. And we don't like that. If only it wasn't there, getting in the way. And so, but awareness, you can be aware of that. The boundary here is marked by irritation. If the irritation is relaxed, the boundary dissolves. Hmm? So we recognize there are, that our conditioned, our attention naturally creates boundaries, but most of those boundaries are biased. Yeah. And some of them are extremely biased by what we choose to see, what we choose to select, what we choose to not pay attention to because it's not very comfortable. It makes me feel uneasy, it disturbs me. Mm. Then we say, well, then the boundary is not is marked not just conventionally by attention, it's also marked by ignorance. I, do, I ignore things. Uh, not just skillfully, as a, well, I'll put that to one side for the moment because I don't want to be aware of that. Or it's marked by irritation. Or it's marked by fear. If I, if I experience that, I'm going to go crazy, I'm going to blow up, people won't like me, I feel totally threatened. Perhaps not even on a rational level, we just feel extremely challenged and disoriented. Mm-hmm. Where I'm, what am I supposed to do? If we get to fear boundaries. Fear boundaries will tend to say, am I doing it right? What should I do? Am I doing it right? Uh, is that right or is it wrong? Quick, tell me so I, I know what, where I'm supposed to be, what I'm supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And we think that's a rational search for information. <laughs> it's actually a boundary marked by loss of presence, disorientation and fear. If I get it wrong, wrong and right are words we use a lot, five letters in each of them, seemingly pretty neutral language, right, wrong. They contain huge amounts of fear and condemnation and, yeah, conceit. So, yeah, and those are used to give us some sense of being right, having an orientation, standing on solid ground. There's such a profound need to stand on solid ground that we use these words to make us feel, I'm okay, I'm in the right camp, I'm doing the right thing, I will not be blamed, excluded, looked upon, down upon, scorned, rejected, so on, I'm right. If I do it wrong, all these terrible things will happen. Yeah. And then we use it towards others, of course. He's wrong. She's right. We're right. They're wrong. And it's used so commonly and so quickly that we never really unpick what those letters mean, what they carry. 
they, they establish boundary. And as you become aware of these boundaries, boundaries of attention, you realize that awareness can be aware of boundaries and what they contain. So attention tends to miss that. Your attention sits within the boundary and focuses on the chosen topic, yeah? and then feels slightly disturbed when you know, my focus of attention is, is disturbed, then I feel I can't meditate because I can't get this focus point. Yeah? So it's, it's like that, or I got it right, I was doing a good meditation there for a good day or two, and then I had to go back to work and things blew up completely, or like my experience. I was quite good at that thing relatively speaking, you know, from my own standards, much better than I when I started anyway. And yet, once that attention uh, boundary was released, there was no ability to uh, feel grounded, confident, have an orientation in life as it actually happens, <laughs> which is not set up, not, you know, in that way. So boundaries. There are boundaries of jealousy. She's getting a better deal than I am. Look what she's got. And it's totally true. If you look at it that way, with attention. She's got this, 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 this. She's got better deal than I do. And then this feeling of either jealousy or I'm lesser than her because she's got that. What's that boundary? Jealousy, judgment, and so on. Mm. And what is it set up? And antipathy. So when you begin to include that one, you can experience this sense of the, uh, the inequality of things and the frustration around that and the feeling lessened by it. Be aware of that. This is something that we can contemplate, aware of, open to, find ground and release ourselves from its grip. This is what jitta can do. This is what awareness can do. From the, from the point of view of the unawakened awareness, then we, we're either trying to get the right one, you know, get rid of the wrong ones, uh, and constantly feel under threat. Jitta is the one that can take us out of this game of winners and losers. That means, but that means you have to include the anger and the jealousy and the fear and the frustration <laughs> powerful emotional currents and for the for this jitta takes its strength from two fundamental experiences uh, two or three fundamental experiences one the experience of ground this is generally initiated through sensing your body. Not 
body in particular pieces, bits and pieces of it, just the sense of having something that has ground underneath it, ground that you don't have to create. The real uh, epitome of ground is it's something you don't have to build. It's given. It's there. It supports you. And so the easiest way to begin to tune into that is just to recognize your body is able to stand on the earth, sit on a seat, and you get that sense. And that, of course, is one of our meditation skills, is just to come back to that time and time again until the mind, the heart, the awareness begins to pick up that tone. Uh, I'm here. I'm present. There's this. I'm present. I'm present with this. And we enter that. And as you enter into that embodied presence, you begin to, by the nature of that embodied presence, open up the can of worms. Because it's in this embodied presence that there's held the distortions of the human predicament, the tensions, the unspoken emotions, the buried memories, the dissonant experiences, the lust, the craving, and uh, you know, and the, uh, it's a, a a a form, a container that is much more honest and straightforward than yourself. The self is a created boundary that is built over selecting comfort zones and feeling quite uncomfortable as it does so because it constantly has to keep holding them together and fending off the opposition. (laughs) And that's exactly the hinge point of what the teaching is about. That the whole idea of self-fulfillment in any level is already a fallacy because the nature of self is an expression of the unfulfilled limitations that get imposed on jitta. The self is the seeking program, the unsatisfiable hunger for more or to get away from or to have or to be or to find ground it cannot find because it cannot open to ground, to the gift, to the openness of awareness. So the process of inclusion is finding in awareness itself this, as we pay attention and soften and widen and in, you know, meet what arises and come to the place of meeting it rather than proliferating about it or thinking about it, we're going to find that the quality of grounded awareness becomes more and more apparent. There's only one quality that can meet what arises, (laughs) and it's not me. (laughs) There's only one quality in the universe that can meet everything that arises, and it's not myself. Myself gets nervous, frightened, you know, impatient and so forth. There's only one quality. So if we learn to find the ground, meet what arises, it gradually 
purifies because you have no choice. Uh, you, know, you have to, to get out of suffering, you have to go into awareness that has no boundaries. Of course, this is why the Buddha said, well, if you, this is going to take you into a lot of suffering. Four Noble Truths made it very clear. This is, this is a path that takes you right into the suffering of being yourself. <laughs> and if you recognize the suffering, is, you're touching exactly where it's not him and them, even though you could go to that direction and it would, you could prove that. But actually, you're going to the place in your heart where the suffering is. And he says, if you can do this, if you can stay with this, uh, and you can't change it, and you can't change what you're feeling, and you can't dump what you're feeling, and you can't get over what you're feeling, (laughs) you can't say, well, I'm past that, I'll get over it, it doesn't really matter. You can't can it anymore. You meet what arises, and you don't. You haven't got any strategies for it. You haven't got any alternatives for it. You meet what arises. Yeah. You're going to meet the very forms, the boundaries of yourself, the fear boundary, the intimidation boundary, the not good enough boundary, the I need more boundary. I should be able to fix this boundary. These, and if you meet them rather than keep feeding them, and you know, tolerant and, and giving them solutions, then those these very boundaries are going to be experienced as dynamic rather than fixed, as something you can directly apprehend rather than just notional, directly in yourself rather than something somebody else did to me, and yet not created by myself, but printed in there and through that and allowing yourself to feel it it also passes changes shifts releases and famously there's the analogy used was if you somebody says to you We'll have a deal. This deal is that uh, in the morning we'll take you out and, th- and stab you with a hundred spears. In the afternoon, another hundred. Evening, another hundred. You get the night off. Next day, same thing. This goes on for a hundred years. At the end of a hundred years, we say you've re- you've you've realized the meaning of the Four Noble Truths. If somebody offers you that deal, shake their hand. Because <laughs> it's worth it. I said, you, if you do this, you'll, you will, this will be the path of deep joy. And you're thinking, that's bizarre. That's crazy. <laughs> that's crazy. Nobody do that. How many spears did you get today? <laughs> Did you look at the newspaper? Did you get, did you get, get a few <laughs> spears from that? <laughs> did you get a few spears when you're walking down the street? Did you get a few spears when your thoughts came up? Did you get a few spears when you remembered this, that, and the other? How many did you get? Did you get a <laughs> hundred? Well, no, I got a <laughs> thousand. 
So maybe it's time to close the deal, huh? <laughs> so what do you do? Put on more armor? Look the other way? Yeah. Uh, try and do a deal with the person who's throwing the spears? Yeah. Complain about it? Yeah. No, you, you, you're open to it. And you recognize the real contact points are the indignation, the fear, the anger, the guilt, the greed. And these, if we touch into these shamelessly, openly, they can be released. This is what chitta, and only chitta, only chitta can do this. This is why, just to even recognize this quality, to realize the true nature of chitta, is itself the great blessing. There's something there precious in us, or precious that we inherit, or precious that we have access to, that we can, we can find, take as our refuge. You cultivate this, and you touch into this, you realize jitta also has just another quality to it, which I'm kind of tentative about, because of what it tends to mean, what it can set off. I call it spirit. Because it, it sort of speaks. It urges. It has a certain call to it. Uh, has a certain it, it it takes you into things. Uh, it, it starts challenging. It ties you to putting you into places that challenge you. Yeah. Like uh, you know, I think I had three years of, of that meditation practice. I don't think I had a moment of peace of mind. Really, <laughs> what am I still doing here? Jitta put me into it. <laughs> yeah. There's a certain quality of, of spirit that has a, has, a, has a certain intentionality to it. It directs us, it pushes us. And as we begin to trust that, it rec- you begin to realize there are certain fundamental uh, inclinations that jitta spirit resonates with. And these, of course, are the powerful, selfless ones. Dana. Yeah. Dana is so often just limited to making a, do- a material, a voluntary donation. Dana means you just give. You give service. You give hospitality. You give time. You give attention. Uh, you give yourself. Yeah. And something you doesn't want to do it, and you resist it, and you think you're not good enough, and you can't do it, and it doesn't mean anything, and nobody cares anyway, and you can't do very much. And Jiddha says, just keep giving, keep giving. Yeah. You serve. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine said he was doing this for uh, this kind of cultivation of service, and people were attacking him, getting annoyed with him. And he asked his teacher, what, what's happening? If, you know, I'm doing all this service, and I'm just getting flack for it. Teacher said to him, oh, good, you're probably doing the right thing, keep going. (laughs) 
just meet those boundaries of wanting to be understood, wanting to get it right, not putting under blame you, you know, just keep meeting that, you're doing fine. Yeah. Dana, generosity. It's not I can't give enough. Just give. I don't know what to give, just give. But just give. <laughs> <laughs> And it also says uh, sila, which is translated as morality. And so often this can get trivialized. Well, I think it's trivialized into keep the rules. Keep the rules, the laws. Then you don't get blamed. Which is a really, really, uh, you know, uh, uh, I think a gross uh, uh, misrepresentation. It means mutual respect. It means mutual res- based on mutual respect. Uh, and quite a lot of people you don't feel respect for immediately. You think, this guy's an idiot. <laughs> you know? But Sela says, well, you, but you can't, you can't follow that thought. You can't follow that in speech. You can't act that way. You have to cultivate non-abuse on any kind. Yeah. Yeah. Non, non-intoxication non-indulgence to others as to myself you have to cultivate that yeah. the spirit says that it also says look there's so many options you can follow in this life and you keep thinking if you just had one more option you'd find the right one if you could just get one more cherry on the cake it would be the right one just one more flavor it would be the right one one more tweak and you get the right one one more just that cushion just a tad higher richer fuller plumper hydraulic adjusted to my hips i'll get the right one yeah one more specialized teacher i get the right one and there's a quality that says there isn't a right one give up no option or start trimming down the options. <laughs> this is called renunciation. Just start cutting down. Learn to live with discomfort instead. And you're thinking, who said that? <laughs> because it comes to the point when just all this seeking and fiddling and tweaking and fidgeting and trying to get the right one is just too much of a suffering. And you think, i oh, just be with the discomfort and relax in that. Now, just those three alone, can you imagine if we cultivated those, what would that be? What would you have as a, as a community? What would you have as a relationship? What would you have as a society if we cultivated those? Yeah. Look what happens when we don't cultivate those, when it's people hoarding, greedy, accumulating vast amounts, not giving, not sharing. You don't get cured unless you give us 10,000 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> what happens when it's like that? When service is not offered. Um, when medical care is not offered. When wisdom is not offered. What happens then? Marginalized. You know, only a certain proportion of people get it. Marginalized. Uh, it comes again, doesn't it? The, the loss of dana is the loss of community. The loss of dana is the loss of community. There's one thing we crave and need 
is to be accepted by others. If you don't cultivate, if you're not in a dana field, you can't, it doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah. and you think maybe it's worthwhile then to give up a bit, to tolerate a bit, to be patient with each other just a little bit more, then we'll have something that includes everyone. And in that inclusivity, even though he's quite difficult and she's a bit of a number, <laughs> and I, this, I mean, this person's never going to change their ways. Oh, include it, because awareness can include it all. <laughs> and from there, we rest in that. It might be that the next time we meet what arises, spirit speaks and says, you know, why don't you just uh, uh, stay with the feeling? Uh, you know, doesn't, you know, that spirit speaks rather than self speaks. And then we find the healing of the Dhamma in our lives and with each other. So there's a possibility for transformation. Uh, Not just medication, not just tranquilizers, not just, um, you know, gaining more something, but true transformation of the whole mechanism that can dominate our lives, the self-mechanism, that is essentially the root of suffering. So, I'll offer that for your reflection this evening, and if you'd like to take a a moment or two to pause, I'm happy to uh, respond to any questions. I won't necessarily answer them, but I'll respond to them. (laughs) (laughs) I'll try to meet them as they arise and see what happens.